Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Hi everyone, Alyssa here. I just wanted to let you know that this episode has a little bit more technical difficulties than we usually hear on the podcast. It was such a wonderful conversation with our guests today on the episode, and we really wanted to get this powerful message out. So if you can just bear with a little bit of some unexpected pauses and us talking over each other a little bit because we're so excited. I know you're gonna benefit so much from this episode and we can't wait for you to meet our fantastic guest, Zenobia, and everything she has to share with you today. Hello, and welcome back to Coffee and Therapy. Woohoo! And it's the full round table plus a special guest today. The one, the only, Zenobia Lee Briggs, right? That's the full name. Yes. Yes. Thank you for for being here. Zenobia, I guess we're kind of putting you on the spot. We didn't even prep you for how we were going to lay this out. We said we just want to get to the good stuff. Um, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your work, what you do, anything you feel comfortable sharing? And of course, we respect whatever boundaries you don't want to share. Um, sure. I am a clinic licensed professional counselor um, in New Jersey. I have a private practice. Um, the name of it is the Center for Embracing Her or Hope, Healing and Renewal. And that is in Metuchen. And I have a second practice in Cinnaminson. And the name of that is the Center for Embracing Her too. And um, we treat all pretty much the spectrum. I have been in private practice since about 2017, Um, but we've been expanding slowly, um, offering individual, family, and um, group counseling services and alternative services. So we do some sound healing. We do some Reiki and Sakechum and um, we have people who do Akashic Records and um, um, yoga. So we're pretty integrative and wanting to be cutting edge. We want people to really feel like they found a place where they can heal. I mean, I'm sure all of us who are therapists who are on here feel the same. So um, it's just really important. I um, find it so important because therapy saved my life. I was in therapy early in my um, young adult life and I continue to be in therapy now. Just trying to unpack, you know, what happened, where I've been, where I'm going. And um, it, it saved my life. So here I am. I hope that answers your question. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Yes. Love being here with you. Oh, and now your practice, it has her in the title. So are you primarily serving people that identify as women or as female? Um, We serve both, but the majority of our practice is uh, female. Yes. Okay. Okay. And that's one of our topics for future too. It's come up a little bit on the podcast of how often men aren't seeking therapy as well. And I think some of the societal and cultural norms are at play there. Um, And that really ties into too, like our theme for today of a population of people who maybe have been underserved, underrepresented in the world of therapy. Um, For those of you that are tuning in, you see the title, we laughed because it just rolls off the tongue, right? It's just an easy title. But it's the legacy of transgenerational trauma and mental health in BIPOC communities. And it's a powerful title for a powerful idea. I wonder, Zenobia gave us the idea for the name of this episode. And when we saw the name, I think we all went, I know those words. And I understand 
what it means, but can you tell us more about what that title kind of represents or a brief summary to kick us off? Sure. I think that um, when we think about the history of people of color in the United States, it is a history filled with trauma and um, there's no, has really been no space for healing, just the fight to survive um, and a mistrust of anything authoritative because it seems that the places that are supposed to be trusted are not able to be trusted. So um, transgenerational trauma refers to um, trauma that extends past the current generation, past the previous generation, past the great-grandparents' generation, but as far back as you can recall, and how that is affecting people in the in today. And uh, the BIPOC community are people who identify as people of color across the diaspora. Um, but I have to say transgenerational trauma is not something that is reserved for people of color. It's for women. It's for Jewish people. It's for um, kind of people, anyone who is not uh, male and white. Yep. Or it's pretty much a running theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's a running it theme of our podcast. All. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think and it's so interesting too. <laughs> oh, sorry, Sarah. <laughs> We're jumping on each other. Okay. Our lag, our, our, our connection is a little weird tonight, guys. Bear with us. But I think that specifically, although we can identify and say like transgenerational trauma is not uh, something that is, <clears throat> excuse me, only unique to people of color. For today's episode, I think is that what we're that's what we're focusing on, right? Is that's is what we're focusing specific, on? Yes. Specific. Yes. yes. So we want to make that clear that it's you know yes this is this is many topics for many uh, episodes, but for today's episode we're focusing on the transgenerational trauma and the impacts of that on people of color. BIPOC, right. The BIPOC yeah. community. Yes. So I think and I have that... a dumb question, maybe. Yeah. Is transgenerational trauma the same as or synonymous with intergenerational trauma? Because I think I've never heard the term transgenerational trauma. I've only heard intergenerational. That's a really good question. I guess I never considered that. What would you say intergenerational trauma is? I would say it's exactly as you described, sort of the trauma as it relates to generations, but I think of it within the family construct. So mm. in the movie Encanto we've talked about on here, you can see that intergenerational trauma of abuela to her children, to the grandchildren mm. of kind of suppressing things. Whereas it mm -hmm. seems like transgenerational is as it relates to the generations of a specific group of people, not a family, but, you know, the BIPOC community, it's yes. the trauma that's inherently part of that. So it does seem like they're different the way I'm thinking yes. about it in my head. In that way, I think you're correct. And I think, I think it's larger, but it also encompasses the family. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's more According to Google, it's kind of synonymous, though. <laughs> it looks like... Okay, well, you know, Google. You know, I, you know, I have, to, <laughs> have to go to Google just to check, because that, yeah. you made me think of that, too, because I was like, oh, yeah, those... I feel like, historically, we've primarily used the term intergenerational. But I, I think transgenerational, transgenerational is more inclusive of what it really is. Yeah, that I do. I agree. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it also calls into when you think about transgenerational, you think about like a whole, like the gestalt. You think about um, even how pe how the majority culture has been affected by their belief system and how that's caused trauma to them. 
you know, to believe yes. that you're somehow special based on your skin color is delusional. And people yeah. feel that, um, and people who've believed that for generations are now dealing with some, I would say, mental health issues. But we don't really call it that because we're not honest enough as a society to call it that yet. But in any other context, it would be called um, psychosis, almost. Mm -hmm. Dare I say. Hot takes from Zenobia. I yes. like that. Yes. Dare you. Yes. yes. We just say that's why you're here, Zenobia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like so, so to talk a little bit about what transgenerational trauma is and how I began to discover it for myself and then how I use it in the context of my therapy. Um, it really, it's, it's interesting that a lot of uh, what we're taught in school and grad school is applicable in some ways to people of color, but not fully inclusive of the experience of people of color. So it needs to be tweaked a little bit. Like, I think that treating people of color, some of the ethical and norms, norm, normative um, ideas about how we practice is a little different um, based on social constructs, based on how uh, the collectivist culture versus the individualist culture functions. So um, there's this idea that we have that wellness looks a certain way and it is achieved through certain um, techniques that really don't fit into um, the cultural norms of the people of color. So Sarah and I worked together at a company about 10 years ago and uh, which is how I know her and one of the things they wanted us to do was call and talk to people about their experience with end of life um and as therapists we have we're supposed to have the tools to be able to talk to these people about end of life and they wanted us to use this technique called motivational interviewing which is wonderful for opening people up and moving them forward and um and, and really like engaging them to begin to consider change, except for a lot of what they use is questions, open-ended questions. And in a, the community of people of color or in the community, a social norm in working with people of color is you don't ask me my business. So, so those types of ideas or, or interventions don't really work with this particular community. So you have to kind of rethink um, and, and really because of the transgenerational trauma, because think about if I got caught doing something back in the 1700s, the 1800s, what that might do to me or my family, move forward to the 1900s into the 1960s still when we were under Jim Crow. Like if I got caught, you know, not doing what I was supposed to be doing and I'm answering your questions in the wrong way, then I could be lynched. I could be hung. My family could be tortured. They could be. And so, so it's never been safe to really um, be open and forthcoming with, with certain information. So it's, it's, a way that we have to now tweak. So like in that experience of working with in, in that job, one of the things that I realized in working with people of color is it's much more beneficial to use, um, to, to use, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on, on the term where you, um, I'm sorry, I just drew a blank on it. Where you? No, you're good. I uh, feel like prompts or I statements, something to help with that initiation. Not not, prom not really prompts or I statements, but when you're like, Sarah, what was it that we used to use? Other open ended questions. It would be three three questions to one or to one. I'm sorry, one of these to three questions. I'm sorry, I can't think of the uh, name of it. I oh, apologize. the re the reflections, but, right? Wasn't it reflections? 
reflections yes i draw a blank sometimes i apologize so reflections what are are better because it helps give words to the experience and it's not as if it it doesn't make them feel like they're giving up too much it, or people of color feel like we're giving up too much information so even little things like that are um are different but my experience has been like in working um with the community of people that I work with is that we've been very angry with our parents for where we see ourselves and for some of the deficits that we perceive ourselves as having, because we've never had the benefit of really looking at where we started versus where, where others start. And so one of the things I like to do is kind of level set. Um, I like to begin to talk about what it was like for, you know, Maslow's theory of the hierarchy of needs and, you know, that first um, rung where it talks about uh, food, clothing and shelter and how long and then the next rung, which is safety and how long we as a people have been striving for safety and continuity. And um, so when when you're dealing with the idea of safety and continuity and and just structure, uh, just your everyday basic needs to be met, there's no room for emotional thought. So people yeah, have been very upset. Self-actualization at the top. Well, yeah. there's not no thought about self-actualization no. in the yeah. community of color. It's typically thought of as a white person's issue. You know, like you're not yeah. white. What are you thinking about that kind of stuff for? What are you What are you considering that kind of stuff for? Because up until the '80s, even there was no space for that. We were getting, you know, hung, lynched. We were being. Um, even now, mass incarceration. Yeah, you know, even now, the hate crimes that are still prevalent too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it makes it really difficult for um, us to like acknowledge how far we've actually, or acknowledge where that where we are is normative, given where we started. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm hoping that I'm hundred percent makes sense. <laughs> okay. Yes, that a hundred percent makes sense, and it's such a important way to phrase it. Of the, it, it sets a clear visual of the pyramid. So, if people who are listening don't know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, do a quick Google; it'll come up for you. But those bottom rungs of the pyramid are supposed to be the smaller parts and thinking about it in that perception too of an entire group of people who make up the global majority of this world have been trapped in the lowest rungs for so long. Of course, it feels like we haven't moved the needle forward in that regard, but we have. It's just we can't jump up to that next level of the pyramid. I think that's Mm -hmm. so... Uh, a so interesting new perspective to look at it too and still horrible because there's no reason for it other than like you said this psychotic delusion that skin color makes you more valid of existence and we are moving forward right but we're not moving forward in the way that we thought we should move forward like we think that our parents should be somehow emotionally connected and coddle us and you know be able to talk about their feelings and you know what it was like and our parents were like fighting to sit on the front of the bus or you know fighting to Mm -hmm. be able to drink out of a water fountain or go to schools or, or learn to read or integrated schools or to learn to read that was their struggle it wasn't there was no no thinking about or or to even be thought of as a man like think of the protests where the men the the um, rail car drivers held signs and the the garbage uh not garbage what are they called uh well the garbage disposal people uh, garbage people held signs i am a man like they had to fight for their ability to be considered a person. So when you're fighting for that, there's no room for 
I wonder, you know, how I can become self-actualized today. I wonder, you know, what, mm-hmm. and, and some did. And, and Zenobia, you said that did. the, I was just saying when you had first sort of started giving us this, this background about how you felt that your training program and the training programs of, of many, you know, uh, clinical professional counselors, social workers are not preparing practitioners to work in BIPOC communities. Do you see an emerging body of research from BIPOC therapists that is influencing curriculum that is influencing program development at at the training program level what what is the interaction there is is there an interaction or an influence you know i guess it depends on where you are educated um in the school i went to there wasn't much emphasis i mean we did have a class on um multicultural counseling Um, we talked a little bit about, uh, the board and being on, you know, the committees that service social justice and things like that. But in order to really, you know, think about the theorists who are, um, conceptualizing the experience of people of color, how you become into, how you integrate um, being a person of color and make that a positive thing into your psyche. There are some theorists that talk about that. I don't, I can't call the names at the, at this time, but there are some theorists who talk about that. However, um, it's not something that I was really taught. Um, I had to kind of do some investigation. And again, I have been in therapy for with, and, and, but like the other thing is, is a lot of um, what we do practically isn't the same as what we're taught in the classroom, right? So you may be taught to do um, CBT in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily, the protocol isn't really administered in that way most of the time when you get into the, um, the treatment room. So I, you know, I guess it's like, I would like to say that, um, you know, it's, it's the different, so different than any other thing, but I think that the difference is, is it's not really focused on. However, um, you do have to, all of us have to kind of get a feel for the community that we serve and consider their social norms and, um, and, and the way they culturally function and begin to treat them from where they are. So, you know, a lot of considering that people of color are more of a collectivist culture versus um, the majority culture, which is more of an individualistic culture. I may have more contact. It may be important for me to have more contact with my clients than what's typically thought of as the norm. Not unethical, like, you know, I'm not going to be going to their birthday parties or anything like that, but like, do some of them have my uh, contact so that if there's an emergency, they can, they know that they can reach out to me? Yes. Um, And I think that that's important. I make that decision because I feel that one of the things that we need is um, support. We don't know how to, we haven't had a lot of that. And because of the transgenerational trauma, we haven't learned how to do that as a community. Um, You know, we were pit against each other. Um, So this is where transgenerational trauma is currently affects us. You know, like there were house slaves and there were the outside slaves and that was based on skin color. So then there's, um, an idea that light-skinned people are somehow better than dark-skinned people within the community. So there's a prejudiced 
uh, prejudice in terms of that. Or if you're mixed, there's a prejudice. Um, you're not black enough and you're not white enough. So where do I fit? Or if you have a different type of vernacular, you know, you're not really black because you don't have the black experience. And so like, there's never a place to fit in. So I try to make sure that there's continuity of support so that my clients know that if you're having a really tough time, if there's an emergency, you can always contact me and you don't have to be alone because a lot of us don't know what it's like to have support. Even even with, through, with mothers and daughters, you'll never imagine how much difficulty that there there is between mothers and daughters in the African-American community, how much complicated competition there is and how normal that is. I thought I was unique. I thought my mother was the only one who, uh, you know, could behave poorly towards her child. But then when I start working with other women of color, I see that that's pretty, pretty typical. Yeah. And I think the boundaries in that sense, and it's something we don't really talk them. about. Yeah. You're upholding them from an ethical place, but the yes. boundaries look different and they're flexible for the people you're serving because yes. different people need different things. Absolutely. I know one of my big questions coming into tonight too was, what are the barriers that the BIPOC community faces to coming into therapy? And you've been hitting them in so many different ways. And it yes. feels like one of the biggest things is that we don't have enough knowledge and education and training around these topics for a lot of people who are white therapists that it, that's yeah. predominantly right. Who is, who be, is becoming therapists right now, still white people hold the majority. So what barriers mm -hmm. are present that we could, you know, deconstruct as white people, as white clinicians and what barriers are maybe inherent that, no matter what we do, they're present and we're going to be fighting them and have to be aware of them. I think that's a really, really good question. I'm so glad you asked it because I really want to address something that comes up a lot with the clients. They always want, they see my face on the, um, on my website and they want a, a person of color. They want a black therapist. And the interesting thing is the black experience is so diverse. Like I may not be able to identify with you because I didn't grow up in, in the projects. So I don't know what that was like, but they automatically assume that somehow because I'm black, I'm going to be able to um, better serve them than someone who isn't black. And I often tell them, I've never had a black therapist. <laughs> I've always had white women or men as therapists. And I think the most important ingredient is curiosity. If you can get a therapist who is curious about your experience, genuinely curious, that is so much better than someone who can identify with your experience. Someone who's had the same experience than you have. Because what does that matter? Right. What does that really matter? Because just because I lived in, you know, the blah, blah, blah projects and you lived in the blah, blah, blah projects doesn't mean that we have that that I've had any growth outside of that or that I, I know how to treat you. But if you're curious about what my experience was in those projects, how it's affected me what it, how it has affected my family, what I learned from that environment, how I communicate with that environment, who I am in the larger world based on that experience, then you can help me. And I think that somehow that has to come across because there is a fear that you're just not going to understand. Like, you're just not going to yeah. get it. You're not going to understand that I had to um, sell my food stamps. You're not going to understand that, you know, I that my brother sold drugs and he went to prison for 20 years. You're going to judge me for that. You're going to judge that my mother was a drug addict or that my father wasn't involved with us or that you're going to you're going to you're going to think less of me for that. 
and 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 that's absolutely not true but there's something in um there's some kind of fallacious thinking that tells us that somehow you haven't had that experience or nobody you know has had that experience and you can't possibly understand you're just going to think less of me so i have to keep that to myself and i can only share that with another person of color and I think that that people of color have such a disservice when to themselves, do such a disservice to ourselves when we think like that. And I try to explain that because I have some really wonderful um, Caucasian therapists that work for me. Wonderful, wonderful. But you'll never believe how um, how difficult it is to get people to agree to work with them. Yeah. And it's just that curiosity and kindness that is sort of inherent part of being a therapist, right? Your duty is to serve the people that are coming to you and support them as they are where they are and get to learn and understand their lived experience to help support them in their growth. But I, it makes complete sense that someone would say, no, you're not going to understand that or you're going to feel this way, especially because of the transgenerational trauma of white people oppressing and holding that power dynamic of course you're going to inherently feel that way but the the ownership is on us to come and say you're welcome here as you are as you come in and there's not it's a non-judgmental space to empower and uplift you and to be able to hold that space for me to say i don't trust you I, yes. I don't know. Yeah. You know, you. I'm yeah. not sure. You say that, yeah. that I'm welcome here, but I don't think I'm really welcome here. And for you to hold the space to, to say, you know, okay, however long it takes for you to be able, yes. that is cathartic. You know, I think a lot about like, even today, I, I um, lived in a small town in uh, central Jersey, a, a, a beach town. And I think about like this small area where all the black people live that is so impoverished and the right across the tracks where all the white people live and all the LGBTQIA community that is so, that's flourishing. And like to see that and to see the disparity is like, well, of course I'm not going to trust that you have my best interests at heart because you can go to bed at night and know that there are people across the tracks that are are hungry or that are not getting access to appropriate education or are not um, being able to, um, you know, do whatever to provide a lifestyle for their children. And, and a lot, and, and you blame and, and, we are um, blamed for that. Like people of color are blamed for their difficulties instead of looking at the gestalt of the situation. And how, how far back it goes, right? Like that, that this is coming from, and this is where that transgenerational word comes in specifically, is that when you have had to struggle and fight for your basic needs to be met from generations back right if your great 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 grandparents had food insecurity housing insecurity were enslaved had to deal with uh all the plethora of traumas that that people of color have experienced and like you were saying, Zenobia, don't have that time or that space or that energy to talk about feelings or to learn how to process those things or to to be uh, soft and and gentle and and do gentle parenting. That's a that's a hot word these days. Then your great 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 grandparents raised their children through a lens of trauma because that's all they have which then passes those learned behaviors on and so forth and so forth and so forth. And at, at each one of those stages, there have, there has been nothing done to support or, or help to take off that trauma lens or to reduce the trauma or to help people process the trauma. Mm -hmm. 
And so without any of that intervention or support, it just continues. And so now you have people 10 generations later who have never, ever known through their family how to process this, how to manage it, how to be safe, how to explore, express, or process their feelings and their emotions. And then we're now looking at- And don't even have any idea that that's a thing. Like they're, they right. don't even know that that is a possibility that is so far right. outside of their realm of understanding. It's like an experience. What? Yeah. Be soft, like soft, yeah. gentle parenting. Of course not. That's going right. to spoil them. You spare the, you spare the, the rod, you spoil the child. Mm-hmm. And so then we have it in 2023 and we're looking at people and saying, well, you were never a slave. You, you you were not experiencing that. You live in a house. You have food security. You have, you know, your parents work and whatever the case may be. And, and the systems that we have in place currently do not recognize that it doesn't matter if it's 2023 and you've never personally been a slave and your parents have never personally been enslaved and your grandparents have never personally been enslaved. That trauma of the lens through which every person mm-hmm. in your ancestry has had to live their life and process and and be if that's the only lens that there is how can you expect 2023 person who hasn't been a slave to to break out of that when there has been nothing done in the meantime to support these individuals through that trauma and and make changes yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think that when we think about the usefulness of being hard, it's because I had to protect my children. You know, children of color weren't free to roam and explore and be children. They had to be well-behaved and they had to make sure that they didn't, that they, you know, helped the family and did their chores. And, you know, there was no room to be a child because, um, well, because they were a commodity. And then when they were no longer a commodity, their safety was in danger. And so we had to make sure that we kept them safe in order to, and and, um, we did that by using harsh discipline. And so that's been passed down through generations. It's just become a norm. You know, the norm is I'm harsh to my children. I don't even know why, but I know that my mom said, mama said, or, you know, uh, Medea or big mama said that if you, or the pastor said that if you don't, if you're not harsh to them, then you're going to spoil them. And there's no way, like, I don't want to spoil my, I don't want to do a disservice to my children. So I have to be harsh to them because I have to, my, my father thought that I was too soft. That was one of the things I heard all the time. You can't be soft. It's a hard world out there. And in his eyes, from his experience being born in 1934, that was his truth. And it must have been so scary for him to have a daughter that was so in touch with her emotions because what was going to happen from his, his understanding, I was going to go out there and be eaten alive by the society at large. You know, I I thought I was entitled because, you know, I was born in the seventies and the eighties. I didn't know anything about, you know, the oppression that he had experienced. So Um, you know, they were just doing what they thought was right based on their experience, just trying to keep us safe, wanting us to have a new, a different type of lifestyle, but not really knowing how to give us a different type of lifestyle. Now, my father grew up in Detroit, so he moved us to New Jersey based on his military service, but he still he learned how to be a a functioning human in the military because when i look at those people when i look at some of the people who live in detroit and how they function 
I understand that that they're still really struggling with some tr- with transgenerational trauma and and um the effects of that you know um just really in survival and so my dad was one of those uh had that worldview until he went into the military but he thought that he had to run his family the way you run a drill sergeant a team you know or your the the recruits he didn't understand that you know um he thought structure was everything. He didn't understand that softness, that gentle parenting is important. And he thought that softness was a weakness. And he really thought that because that was his experience. So one of the questions is, how can we better support youth? I think that's a really good question. And I think that I I definitely hesitate to work with younger Uh, children. And the reason why is I feel like you work to heal them and then put them back into a situation where they're trying to use the tools that we teach them. And they are so foreign to the people that they're trying to use them with. It kind of can scar them. Like imagine I'm teaching you how to communicate, like how to, how to, um, you know, talk about your emotions, talk about um, what your experience is. And I'm putting you into a situation, I'm telling you to do these things or how to do these things and you're trying them in a situation where the adults who have all the power have no idea what to do with that. And they're looking at you like, what are you, are you doing that white stuff on me? <laughs> like, are, are you serious? And so like, could I be punished for that? I don't, I think, I think the best thing we can do is to honor a child's truth as much as uh, developmentally appropriate and work with the parents because parents really do want to be good parents. Most of us, but we just really don't know how we just, um, and not that people of color, I don't want to, I don't want this. I feel like in some ways I'm kind of like coming down really hard on people of color. And I don't want that to seem like that. I think that our intentions are, to raise good children and to um, to be the best parents we can be, but we are coming with some deficits. And I think you're painting a that, picture for us, for us too, to say, here's the perspective you need to have of this perception is there that there's this non-gentle, right? Or assertive or aggressive parenting, but it's because of real valid reasons, right? You're afraid for your child's safety and you right. want them to keep everything together, shape up so that they can stay alive. So I think it's really important yeah. for us to say, it's like, I'm painting this picture of the reality of what parents, grandparents, great grandparents have experienced. So when someone's coming right. to you, there, there should not be judgment around that parenting style. That is parenting from a place of love, though it feels like it's something that's hard right? We're here to support both sides of that, of you, right. we don't want you to have to feel this way as a parent, but also as a child, respect and understand that this was that parenting love, but we're going to support you in how you are processing that now as yeah. an adult or as an older child. Yeah. Well, I, because do you see how quickly that societal, how quickly that cultural norm snuck in? Because what it told me was, you're giving up too much, too much information to these white women about what it is to be black. You're turning on your people. You need to shut that down. You can't, you can't tell them all that they're going to judge you. And so that is how ingrained it is as a therapist who's been in counseling for over 25 years. 
for her own personal traumas um, to be for it to sneak in that quickly for me to have want to backtrack and say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to make you think something bad about my people. Think about what the clients experience. Yeah, that makes this feel so. This makes it feel so. I don't want to say hopeless because that feels a little too extreme. But when you're sitting here, Zenobia, saying, "I am a trained clinician, have been in my own therapy for 25 plus years, and this still crept in." that quickly mm-hmm. these the 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 learned behaviors of generational trauma snuck in that quickly where i had to go yes. back into protective mode go back into the, with 25 years of therapy and lots of years of therapeutic experience and clinical experience so then when when we are placed in a position of working with clients working with children, working with whoever the population is who we work with, it feels like such an insurmountable task to try to yeah. work through that. So so what where's where's the hope? Like how how can we then continue to make these strides and take these steps and and better mm-hmm. assist our clients of mm-hmm. color, our mm-hmm. our neighbors of color, our communities of color, people around mm-hmm. us, how do we do that? So how I work with my clients is I remember that this didn't start in one generation. It's not going to be cured in one generation. You know, I love motivational I interviewing because we drop nuggets and they take hold and it changes generations. You know, if I can hug my child more then my child learns that hugging is okay, and maybe not in this generation, the parenting style isn't, isn't so harsh or remains, maybe in this generation, the parenting style remains harsh, but in the next generation, maybe it's a little softer. And I remember that I normalize a person's experience for them and offer unconditional positive regard for as long as it takes for them to start to take in that they are okay. Given their circumstances, it makes sense that they would do what they have done. You know, like if you've prostituted because you have five kids to feed, because your family doesn't believe in abortion, and nobody can support you financially, that's a smart decision. Because you don't want your kids to be hungry. It may not be the only decision you could make, but that might be the only decision that you knew in that moment. So you you shouldn't judge yourself for that. You made a, a decision to help your children, yourself and your children, to have food for the now. Now let's talk about what we can do differently so you don't have to do that again. But there's no judgment that you made that decision. That was a a good decision. You stayed with someone um, in an abusive relationship because you knew that if you took yourself out of the situation, Mm -hmm. you would um, eventually... You would your socioeconomic status would plummet, and you would um, your children would end up in a, a worse situation than they're in now. That makes sense as long as you're not, you know, being physically assaulted, and your children aren't being physically assaulted. To me, that was a smart decision, and to be able to affirm for the client that the decisions you make makes sense based on your knowledge base and your information that you have right now. And let's think about some alternate decisions also so that you have a plethora of things to pull from as you continue to to travel this road. And I think that's how it happens. You know, helping to educate them. I do a lot of psychoeducation because they don't understand. Like, they're like, well, why was my mom such a 
she was like, you know, excuse my language, but you know, she was awful. She was like, and it's like, well, of course she was awful. She was so disconnected from her emotions and what she had to do. You know, you have the ability to get up and get a job. They didn't do that back in the forties, even the sixties, you know, you had to have, when my mother when I started seeing my mother as a human, and that's part of what I do with my clients too, is I share a lot of my personal stories so that they understand that I can identify and I don't judge, which is very different than what we've been taught in school. But it seems to work because they know that I know when I had a counselor and she was a white counselor and she told me she was a battered woman, I knew that she got me because I too had had that experience. And when she said, you know, I had, I've been in, so she didn't tell me about, you know, all the beating she took and all, she just told me I too have had that experience. So, um, I think I was saying that to say that, um, when we can, um, let the clients know that they're not terminally unique and that, um, that we can understand their perspective from where they were, I think that that provides the space for them to kind of relax and and not feel as judged, not feel judged, you know, not feel like they're making this horrible decision because everything in our society tells us that we're bad. You know? It sounds, Zenobia, like there's a necessary balance in the duality of validation and affirmation and introducing alternative thinking and perspectives. Yes, that's what I was going to say. I think that education is very important. Talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, giving them the, the language, um, the, the interject, the internal interject, the um, talking about like, the neuroepinephrine and the dopamine and how that affects depression and state depression versus trait depression and, and, you know, using behavioral medication versus uh, pharmaceutical medication and giving them the language so that they can make decisions, talking about different theories, you know, existentialism. And here's what your thought talks about. And, oh, you know, Maslow talked about this. Oh, when you're thinking about your kid isn't, you know, being so, you know, is being a little bit, um, you know, mouthy. Well, Erickson says at this stage, this is where they are helping them to understand that there, there are, there is information about this and, and it's normal because I think that one of the things that trauma does is it tells you that there's something wrong with you. And I think that component too of the psychoeducation and giving those tools is so critical as we kind of come to the end of our hour here too. I wonder if there's additional action steps therapists who are listening can take, or just people who are consumers of therapy can take to put themselves in a position to explore how therapy can help themselves or as therapists more tools we can use to serve these communities that have been, you know, unjustly impacted by transgenerational trauma and its effects. I think curiosity is a tool. Curiosity and unconditional positive regard. You know, ask me about my experience. You know, don't ask me, don't make it feel like I am uh, telling you my business. But how about reflecting a little bit about of what you see and making that an open-ended statement so that I can comment more on that? Um, and, and really like um, hold the space for me and help me know that given, I think I had a therapist, she was actually a nun. Her name was Laura, bless the dead. And the one thing that she gave me that was so powerful was, Zenobia, given your experience, given what you were going through, it makes sense that you would have done what you did. Um, And and that was so life-giving because it helped me understand that she 
she got me. Like I wasn't crazy because it f- could feel like you're crazy. I wasn't crazy. I was, um, I was um, doing the best I could with what I had. And Noah I, put it I in the re- chat too of like channeling that curiosity and putting it into action of that supportive, that unconditional regard and not being ignorant, but saying, I see you and I'm open to hearing you and you're not crazy. And every choice you made was valid to that experience. And here's how we can continue to move forward in this journey. If it was, because I also think authenticity is important is one thing I appreciate working with people of color I'm able to say girl now you know that it did not make any sense you know but you have to have you have to build rapport you know you have to be able to um have the level of trust where it's like okay I can tell you what I did and you can tell you I know Mm -hmm. you're gonna tell me you know Mm -hmm. that my client said to me the other day Mm -hmm. I was telling her something about I had asked her, it was something about sex that she, she was saying, I was like, oh, sex changes your relationship. Oh no, that doesn't happen. Like that sex is fine. Sex is because she wanted to be able to have sex when she felt like it. And so like now a year later, sex is a problem, huh? And she's like, I remember specifically when you asked me that question before and I told you, no, let me ask you, do you gloat when you find out <laughs> that, that you were right? And I said to her, yep. <laughs> It was wonderful, you know, right? And she appreciates that, yeah. And that relationship and rapport is key, right? To that's where the healing happens, yeah. Yeah. The next episode coming out after yours, Zenobia, is all on like the qualifications and what it takes to become a therapist. And one of the spin offs of that we want to have too is talking about kind of these different types of therapy that exist right now where you have teletherapy of in-person therapy of better help and talk space and all these things and Mm -hmm. that the critical element that could be missing in some of those different styles is that relationship because if you don't have that sometimes it's important that your therapist can call bull when they need to and you have that relationship to hear it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I, I think, think that's the key, the thing that stood out for me the most, Zenobia, and what you were saying when we're talking about, like, like, what do we do about this, right? So aside from what we're doing in the room, you know, having that, building that rapport, ha- building that trust, providing that space, um, you know, the unconditional positive regard, all of that, what really, I think, is a big, big take-home message here is that, like you said, transgenerational trauma didn't happen overnight so it's not going to be fixed Mm -hmm. or healed overnight and that by making by by helping people to recognize that making small changes now Mm -hmm. it's not going to necessarily break the cycle or break the chain or just stop it right Mm -hmm. there in its tracks but it's going to plant that seed and it's going to make it a little bit better for the next generation who will then make it a little bit better for the next generation and so on and so forth. And I think that's, that's huge to be able to say, we can do the work, we can do this work and we might not see the huge benefit of it. We might not see the the final impact of it in our time, but that is still so important to be able to do it now and let those seeds grow over time so i just want to tell you from a person of color i know we're getting ready to close out but um my great grandmother was a slave i went to counseling because my mother knew that somehow i needed to be in counseling she started me in counseling i was able to um, get some help. And now my son goes to an Ivy League college. That is how much counseling and support helps. So now his children will have stability. They'll be like five of the rungs on Maslow's hierarchy. He definitely can move towards self-actualization. That's how fast that happened. From my great-grandmother two generations ago, 
three generations ago was a slave was enslaved to my son now able to have full access to his emotions my son said to me mom i need to talk to you about my mental health like this is where we've come just because of the support of therapy so you know it does help you guys are really yeah. making a difference I think that's important to hear too, because it can feel like you're only pushing the needle so much. And it's because we're one being, right? One being is doing work, but you can impact the one person in front of you as much as they're impacting you in return. So I think that is such a powerful thing for me to hear as a therapist of, it makes a difference. Everything matters. Every second matters. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. So sometimes it can get hard and you feel like, yeah, I'm a little bored, but you know, this is really, we are very fortunate to be able to do what we do. Very fortunate. Changing lives. Changing lives. Oh, Zenobia, it was so just wonderful to have you on and you are so expressive and clear in your thoughts. And I think, are really going to shape our listeners and give them some of that same renewed energy. Um, Is there a space our listeners can continue to follow you or find you like your LinkedIn, or if your um, practice has a social media page or any of those things where people can follow along on your journey? We do have a social media page. We have embracing her on Facebook and Twitter, no Instagram, not Twitter. And I'm not the person who really handles it, so I don't know a lot about it. Sure. um, (laughs) I'm not really savvy in that way, um, but I do have someone who does it, and she's wonderful. Um, Thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll put Zenobia's bio and everything in the show notes, and then if there's any other way you want people to be able to get in touch with you, we'll leave that there as well. Um, Yes. The website is embracinghhr.com. HHR, got it. Yeah. I have to Put share it one fun notes. fact. I have to share one fun fact with the audience. Do it. If we if if any of the listeners can remember, I think it was the episode where we were talking about just like unconventional therapists and and sort of how my I have a little bit of a rougher presentation. And you may remember I was referring to a dear, dear friend of mine who has like what I consider the epitome of a therapist voice who I tried to emulate and spent hours <laughs> trying to talk like Zenobia is that person. When I met Zenobia, I was like her aura, her, her, the, her tone, her voice. And I was like, that's what I want to sound like as a therapist. And girl, I tried so hard and you know, we've, we've, we go way back. And clearly it hasn't worked (laughs) because I still sound like this and you sound like that. But that is the one. She is the person who I said. Hey, you're the podcast favorite, Sarah. I just want to sound like like Zenobia. And I I swear to you. like you, Sarah. (laughs) I practiced. I tried so hard. (laughs) And to this day, I'm always like, oh, Zenobia and her. her Like. Sometimes I just oh, need to hear it yeah. just for my own self. I'd be like, "Hey, girl, just, oh, just say something." It's a good soothing voice. <laughs> but she's the yes. one. So there's a little fun fact to end our episode on that. Clearly, it didn't Thank work. Thank you guys I, for having me. I really, I'm, I appreciate you having me on it, and and taking this topic seriously because I think that it's important, and I love that you guys are open to talking about this. Yes, absolutely. I hope our listeners re-listen time and time again. And and I think on that beautiful note of everything we do matters. So just keep striving to be your best self and supporting people with curiosity and kindness and unconditional positive regard. And, and you're doing the good work. So yeah. mm-hmm. we always end the podcast in a kind of a silly way, Zenobia. We say the word bye just really loud and high pitched. So you can join in with us or just listen. 
we thank everyone for being here tonight. Tune in next time to Coffee and Therapy. But for now, bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks for listening to Coffee and Therapy. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and Therapy. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.